From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Welcome back to From the Void for part two of my interview with Dr. Levon Tao. If you missed part one, I'd highly recommend you pause this episode and go back and listen to part one first. If you heard part one, then welcome to this week's mystery, The Unsolved Murders of Jack the Ripper, part two on From the Void. Oh man. So let's talk about this. You know, we were, you alluded to this earlier and I think this is very interesting. So the second and third victims actually are, uh, I'm sorry, the third and fourth victims happen the exact same night and there is a slight difference there. So talk about, uh, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. Yeah, it's, it's called the double event. Like I said, it was September 30th. This is also, it's something that's extremely rare for this to happen. Um, there are serial killers of course that have killed, a bunch of people one night, um, but the idea that uh, he killed someone and then a few minutes later killed somebody in another part of town uh, is just extremely rare. And, and again, it was one of those things that, that makes people think maybe um, this was a, just a coincidence, which uh, again, with the rarity of murder at the time, uh, right. So you, you have that, 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 uh, tension on, on both sides. Like, yeah, but two murders in one night in, in this area, it was just not common. But at the same time, uh, the idea that one person kills two people in, in two separate areas and in, in one night is also, I mean, Ted Bundy, there was a case where he killed two women in one day, but it was, he went to a park and picked up a woman, took her to somewhere and killed her, got another woman from that same park and took her. So it's, it's a little bit more explainable, but, um, yeah, so we had first one, uh, uh, that Elizabeth stride, uh, was found because, uh, Louis Dimeschutz, I always uh, love that name. So that's why I remember it, um, was driving a cart. He had a pony that was, that was pulling his cart, pulled into, uh, this, uh, alleyway where he was going to, to, uh, go to a meeting, uh, very late at night. Um, and or actually early in the morning and um, his horse bucked up um, and and away from uh, one side of the wall and so he thought something must have spooked it so he got down he lit a match and he saw a bundle there and very quickly said that it was a very windy night and the match went out very quickly but he saw that it was a woman there and there was blood on her throat um, so the police got there um, and, and she had had her throat had cut, her throat but cut, that was it. That and was she's it. actually called Lucky Liz, called Lucky Liz because of that, because she only got her throat cut. That also, uh, leads to some people thinking, um, that maybe she wasn't one of his victims because she didn't have the mutilations. But then the other line of thinking is that 
that Louis must have interrupted him, which led to the second killing because he didn't get what he wanted, which like the FBI says that his ritual is the mutilation, not the killing. So if he couldn't mutilate her, he did not get, he didn't get, become satisfied. So he had to go across the, the, the city. So about 15 minutes away, um, that, uh, there was a woman right about the time that, uh, Liz Stride had been found. Um, Catherine Eddowes was being let out of jail. She had been picked up for drunkenness and they had kept her there, uh, uh to, sober up, which is basically what they did. And then they let her out. But 15 minutes after she was let out, um, she was found dead. And she was still warm when they found her. But, wow. and what he did, the fact that not only did he get across there, but he did what he did. Um, it, it's, it's just amazing. So that's also something that leads to people to think maybe um, Listride was just not one of his victims, that Eddowes was the only one. So yeah, Listride, who was just, her, her throat was cut. I keep saying just, of course, the woman was killed. But um, Eddowes, she uh, had her throat cut, again, almost back to the, the, the spine itself. Uh, her abdomen was, was uh, her mutilated. Abdomen or mutilated. They, uh, he, he took a kidney. Um, he put her intestines over her shoulder, um, which was something that he did also with uh, Annie Chapman. Um, but he cut her ears. Um, he, he cut part of her nose off. He put um, V-shaped cuts underneath both of her eyes. Um, this was uh, also uh, the, the time that uh, we have, again, an eyewitness report that may be, um, again, more credible than, than the others. You had three men who were uh, walking together and saw a few minutes before this, Catherine Edo speaking to a man, um, and uh, he was 5'7", fair hair and mustache, which does correspond with a couple of others. Um, look like a sailor again, which also corresponds, but that describes so many around there because that was a place you know, so near the port in Whitechapel that that's where sailors would go for the weekend because they would have to be back on the, the boat by Sunday night. So of course they would just go over to that area there. But, um, since this, uh, Joseph Lewindy, uh, saw this man, that was the first time that, uh, really that the police treated this as a a credible um, uh, sighting because it was so close to the time that she was killed. Yeah, and it, it does kind of lend towards that this, this idea that if the killer was a sailor, you know, they're shipping off to sea for periods of time, and so you know, making it a little harder to catch that that person. Yeah, and and since the the murders all happened on the Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, right? That would correspond with the days that. Uh, the uh, the sailors would have off, and yeah, then he would get right back on a boat. And who are you searching for? You can search all you want. He's he's at on a boat. <laughs> he's nowhere near yeah. where you are. And then when you let your guard down, or if he's back in port. So of course. Wow. So want to uh, talk about and maybe this is where you're headed. Uh, there was another interesting, unique characteristic to the Eddowes murder where they find uh, part of her bloodied apron yes. at the entrance to a tenement. Yeah, right. So uh, and, a, and a couple of things uh, play into this. Uh, 
first, yeah, uh, they found it. She was killed, uh, as I said, it was only 15 minutes away, but she was killed in a different jurisdiction. So she was killed in what they would consider the city of London proper, which is a, a mile... Uh, I think a lot of people now call it like with a, the city, but they say it with capitals. And uh, it's uh, the financial district of London. It's just a square mile that, it, that incorporates the middle of London. Um, so we have a just different police jurisdiction. So even though uh, we had the Metropolitan Police, who had been, who's basically everybody around London, and the Metropolitan Police are what's more commonly known as Scotland Yard. Um, but then you have the City of London Police, uh, and they were helping do some of the canvassing and helping with extra patrol people, but they weren't necessarily uh, deeply involved in the Ripper investigation. But now this second murder actually happened on their patch. So it actually led to some problems and some jurisdictional tug of war as well. And this is not new and, this is, and it hasn't stopped uh, the Bundy case no. because uh, it, it was... Uh, different states as well as different cities they weren't cooperating with each other they refused to give some description that probably led to bundy being out longer than he should have been things like that but um but yeah so where edo's apron was found uh, which also yeah makes this unique because it does show this with the pattern of blood that was on this apron uh that it showed not only he he wiped his hands and wiped off the knife with it and then threw the apron in this doorway and uh this show now this is exactly how if the the person is dead and then there's not blood pumping and that he mutilates and he can get probably yeah his hands are going to be pretty pretty bloody um and uh then of course the knife but all he needs is something like that scrap and then he could get rid of that very quickly um, and then blend in with everybody else, even if it was upcoming uh, daytime. So um, they found the apron yeah, pretty quickly, but in that doorway, uh, into the entrance itself, on the wall, there was a, a message that was written in chalk there. And what it said depends on what book you look at and who yeah. you believe the policemen versus there were two different policemen as well as an official version that came out at the time. But it, it said something like the Jews are not the men who will be blamed for nothing. That the other variation is the Jews are the men that will not be blamed. So it's just basically the, the positioning of the not. And the reason why we don't know is because Sir Charles Warren, who was the head of the, of the um, Metropolitan Police, so since this was considered a ripper killing, Metropolitan Police claimed jurisdiction, and of course the City of London said, we have jurisdiction, there was this tug of war. But Warren got there first, and because the word Jews was there, um, they were afraid that it would incite some, not only panic, but also maybe some violence. But the word Jews was misspelled also. It was spelled J-U-W-E-S, which uh, not really even sure why. Uh, the letter that supposedly was was uh, true, the, the one from uh, George Sims maybe, um, didn't have a bunch of misspellings or anything. So it's not... Hmm. It's not known why the the word was written. There are a lot of 
of um, explanations for that. Some people think it was supposed to it it was just run together and it was and it was supposed to be J U I V E S, which may be a variant of how Jewish is said in French. It, I, there are all kinds of theories, um, but Warren. Made the call at the time to uh, one person said just wipe out the first line. We'll keep the second. We'll keep. We'll they they were going to get a photographer to come there, which is a, when we talk about forensics, they had to hire somebody each and every time. They didn't have an official police photographer yet. It was way too expensive for something like that. So, um, but no, he told them wipe it out, and they wiped out the whole thing. So no one will ever know exactly what that said. Now the issue is, the issue is what, does that mean? what does that mean, first of all, first of all. Uh, other than pointing it. Now, some people think it points away from Jewish people. Others think it points toward a Jewish person being the killer. Well, the problem with that is no one can agree on if that was even written by the killer, how long that message had been there. It's called the Golston Street Graffito now. Um, but so that those are like with most of the things in this case, there's just no one straightforward explanation of it. So, yeah. Yeah. The, and there was and there was there was some history, too, of, of um, graffiti not being uncommon in the area as well. Right. Exactly. It wasn't the only thing there. That's also what people have brought up since then as well. It's like, why, why focus on that? You could go further down in that, that entryway and alleyway and, and see more. But it was just because it was so close to where she was found, there was the connection. Now, close is relative. It was, supposed, it was like a few yards down and to the, to, in one direction. I was going to say to the left. I'm not sure, though. Uh, in, in one direction. So that's, that's another issue. It's like, okay, so, but... Because the, the apron was found there. And so, well, you, 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 people would say you can't connect one without the other. But he could have. It's dark. He throws it. He's not looking at what's on the wall there. But because wherever he threw it, uh, it's been connected with Jack Ripper ever since. What I think is almost more interesting, though, that, that tells us maybe perhaps a little bit more, and maybe uh, you can shed some light on this in terms of... Um, what investigations were done in regards to the fact that the crime was committed in one area and then they find a, a piece of the apron back in, I, I think, Whitechapel, right? It, does that give them any kind of indication in terms of the direction he may have been heading? Well, they th if, if they found uh, the, the apron uh, where they did, they think that, uh, that he used that, that entryway in order to affect his escape. That's... But yeah, so it did look like he was uh, moving away. But the problem is that where he would come out uh, would allow him to go in any direction. Uh, so it, it doesn't narrow anything down. But, but that's a, that is a good point, right? But that, that is a good point. But, um, but yeah, so where he would come out, uh, yeah, it would just allow him easy access to anywhere he wanted so, so talk about the the last victim, or at least the last agreed upon victim, Mary Kelly. So this is November 9th, eighteen eighty eight. Yeah. So this one is is always the top. Uh, we have a few 
mortuary photos, um, even of uh, Martha, Martha uh, Turner, Tabram. Um, and we have uh, Catherine Eddowes' uh, picture that's, that's pretty striking. Um, but we do have, they actually, uh, the first, the only um, crime scene photos we have are of Mary Kelly. Over the years, I've heard there are more that have either been lost or stolen, but we do have two. One actually just resurfaced uh, maybe 20 years ago. But um, so it, it, it is striking because you can speak about, especially with Edo's injuries, but it's after her autopsy, so... It's not as, I don't think, affecting, but with Mary Kelly laying where she is before anybody had done anything um, uh, forensically or anything is, is just, it doesn't look real. It's so bad that it doesn't look real. And uh, when I've talked about that in class, when you look at the pictures, uh, it, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of, I think, the only way that I can really process it that it because it doesn't look real that it's it's uh, easier to take but um so uh, he, the difference with her is that she actually had an apartment she had a live-in boyfriend who had had paid for her to have a, a place and i say apartment very very small but the idea that she actually had a bed and a little area that was indoors was was really uncommon at the time uh he had a fight with her uh, not long before, and moved out, but it was um, ostensibly paying her rent. Uh, but he had actually seen her the night before as well and talked to her. But um, he says at the inquest that they were just talking. They don't think they were going to get back together. But um, so when she went out that night uh, and looked and picked somebody up, who turned out to be Jack the Ripper, we think he had no idea that she was going to take him into an apartment. The idea, he thought they were just, just like the others. They would go to some secluded area. But she had her own place, which meant he could take all night. And he did. Uh, so her mutilations were extensive. Um, somebody heard screaming at about 4 in the morning, 3.30 or 4, depending on the reports that you look at. Um, and um, and cries of murder, but sadly, um, it wasn't uncommon uh, for the area. Mm. So people said, that, "Yeah, they heard it, but they ignored it because you hear it all the time." Wow. So so yeah, talk talk about because I think one of the interesting things too about serial killers is you know they don't typically stop killing unless they're caught. Or uh, they die, or you know something along those lines. So, uh, what what is kind of the theory there? So, like obviously she's kind of viewed as the last, and obviously the most brutal. And then suddenly, nothing. <laughs> yeah. So that's why you have Alice McKenzie the next year, as well as as a couple others. You even have a, a in a warehouse a couple years later. You have what they call the Thames Torso Mystery where they found the torso of a, of a woman, um, just the torso, but uh, never identified. But they, the police or the, the press, of course, said, Jack Ripper's back. It's like, first of all, he never did this. And secondly, um, that there was no mutilation on the, the abdomen like all the others. So there were a few things that didn't add up. 
and uh, and yeah, so some of the theories uh, I think go into the suspects, but uh, the some theories say that this was he he again didn't know that he could just sort of take his time, um, and that this caused a psychotic break in him, that it was his last because he just couldn't even function as I think a lot of serial killers talk about almost being two people. Uh, Ted Bundy talked about, he called it the hunchback. He said, whenever he killed somebody, it was the hunchback doing it. Um, and uh, Henry Lee Lucas would talk about this feeling that would come over him where he said, I just got to kill somebody. And it was almost, he, he reconciled it by saying it's like a, it's like a separate thing. It wasn't my fault. Hmm. That it just got, and Kemper as well. And I keep saying Kemper, but yeah, he was another. So, um, the other uh, theory is that he killed himself after this. Um, Montague John uh, Druitt was a um, uh, another, um, or as a suspect, uh, and he killed himself a few weeks after Mary Kelly by putting rocks in his pockets and walking into the Thames River. Um, his mother had, had been uh, confined to an asylum uh, many, many years before, but uh, he had supposedly told his brother that he was afraid he was going to wind up like her. Um, so some people, because of the proximity, because of when he did it, they attached him to um, the murder. And because uh, in a memorandum, uh, the, the McNaughton memorandum, again, the one that was written in 1894, he mentions three suspects, and one of them is uh, Montague Druitt because, again, he, he killed himself uh, right after the last killing, which would explain why there weren't any more. Interesting. And talk about who McNaughton is for a second, because I know you've mentioned him earlier, but he was the head of Scotland Yard? or Yeah, after, um, he was not exactly the, the head at the time, but he uh, he was working there, and then he became the head afterward. So that's why he, he had written this memorandum at, in 1894, because obviously he was very, very protective, and he was kind of tired of seeing what he saw in the, in the press. So he, he wrote this letter, which was published in a lot of, of newspapers. So, yeah, so he headed the Metropolitan Police by then, by 1894. So based on what we know now and uh, being able to potentially eliminate some of the suspects, because there were a ton. I mean, if you Google search <laughs> Ripper suspects, I mean, you'll spend all day just doing that. But um, I, I know one of the names that always came up and, and came up again recently is Aaron uh, Kosminski. Um but some of these names that pop up, one of the things I noticed is a lot of them were Polish Jews. How much of this was, you know, kind of anti-Semitism and how much of it was actually, you know, these guys were decent suspects who may have actually done it? Um, I think uh, there is a, a little bit of, of anti-Semitism in there, but because the population was so heavily Jewish um, and especially coming from Poland where... Uh, again, a lot of the, the pogroms that were occurring at the time, I mean, you, you either leave or you die. Um, and that, uh, that there was such a, a huge population there of people who were around the, the right age, who were tradesmen, who were in that area. And it seemed like that, just like in the United States where you have areas where people had concentrated, like little Italy, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, this was a place that, that uh, a lot of Jewish people came to and, and settled in. So the population was heavily that from the, about 10, 15 years before that. It became that way. Um, 
So, uh, also in 1910, one of the reasons why I think as well is, is uh, 1910, Sir Robert Anderson, who was the, the head of the police um, um, at the time the murder started, um, wrote a, a book called The Lighter Side of My Fish and Life, and uh, he talked about the Ripper murders, and he said in his book, we know who he was, I just can't tell you, which is like the biggest cop oh. ever, but <laughs> Come I was, on. yeah, exactly. Like I'm smarter than you, but uh, you wouldn't know her. It's kind of like, yeah, I have a girlfriend in Niagara Falls. You wouldn't know her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so he said that he was a Polish Jew is an ascertained fact. We know who he was. We had a witness who would, uh, who did, uh, identify him but he refused to testify against him so we couldn't bring a case mm. and that's now a lot of people think that we had lawinda with um eddos but we had another um uh, who saw somebody with liz stride um uh, Israel Schwartz. Yeah, Israel Schwartz saw somebody, a man, and Liz Stride having an altercation. And actually, he knocked her down. And Israel Schwartz, when he saw that, went to the other side of the street and walked on. He didn't want to be anything, and it had anything to do with the domestic argument. Um, which some people take as an argument that it was domestic, and that his her boyfriend actually killed her. But... Um, but, um, Israel Schwartz gave a description, gave a description of him to the police, to the police. And, some and some people think that he's the one, he's the one who identified, identified the, the, the Jew that, uh, yeah, that, um, that Anderson is talking about and refused to testify. Refused so that's, but again, that but again, does that, that, does that, we still don't know who he was, who still doesn't help us. Right. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, so, um, yeah, so um, Kosminski, Kosminski, yes, Polish Jew, we have also, we have also um, uh, George Chapman, George who is Chapman, from Por Poland, was another, who was a killer, who did poison his wives and girlfriends. He would usually wait to marry them, which you know, was nice of him, and then he would kill them. He poisoned them, usually get their inheritance off of them, uh, put, yeah, get a life insurance policy on them, poison them slowly, and then take their money. Um, he was supposedly trained in surgery or at least in a little bit of medicine in Poland before he, he went to England um, and then worked as a barber, which wasn't uncommon. In fact, historically, there is a connection between being a barber and being a doctor. Um, and then with inheritance money, he actually opened a bar in, in, in London. In fact, had had uh, a barber shop at one time where I think he would have his wife play the piano while he gave haircuts, which they said was, was a great local attraction. But yeah, he was a murderer. But the problem is, again, now there's a difference. He could, you know, going for poisoning people and poisoning people you know, which I think is actually the harder hurdle to climb. That serial killers don't change that way. You don't. You don't change. You don't right. Kill people you know, that you're acquainted with, and then start killing random people. Um, so, but because he was a known murderer who was actually yeah, found, tried, and executed, then 
and was living in London at the time, there are some people, yeah, who, who say that maybe he was. And, and of course, because of his, his background being from Poland. Yeah. So who do you think out of all the suspects are the most uh, likely candidates? And, yeah, Kosminski is probably number one, not only at the time, but because um, he fits a lot of the a lot of the um, criteria. I think that uh, if you go by, uh, I'm not going to say that you know, I believe completely in profiling or anything like that, but he does seem to fit a little bit. And what I would say is, if I had like a top ten, I think I would have the first like five blank, and then Kosminski would be sixth. So I think like he's as close as we're ever going to get. It was somebody like him, if not him. So very ordinary person. He was known to be um, that he seemed to be normal. And then it, when he got into his 20s, he started to become violent, especially toward women and outwardly violent, where he would just attack women on the street and finally became uh, was sent to a lunatic asylum. Um, that does correspond with some serial killers who seem to, we know that people can develop schizophrenia and like around the age of 25 is where you start to lose, especially men, lose their um, danger of developing it. But it does seem to have 18 to 25, which are when a lot of serial killers get started, also corresponds with the onset of some mental illnesses. So, um, yeah. So. Yeah, this very, very ordinary person um, who, as I said, knew the, the area well um, and could blend in, but it would not be anybody that you would look at. He had no prominent position. Um, I think he, probably somebody that seemed to be unmarried. I think he may have been married before, but I think it was somebody that because of the times that this happened, this was not somebody who had to account for his whereabouts that he could go out in the middle of the night, which is not something you're necessarily going to do if you're married and have a stable home life. Um, and if he worked then, that he wouldn't be able to prowl around. This kind of person is probably somebody that was a hunter who I think had a lot of um, disorganized tendencies, like I said, which, which means that he was out a lot. And that uh, a lot of serial killers did that too. They didn't kill every time, but they were out hunting quite a bit. Uh, and it just depended on the night whether or not they wanted to. Even with the, the Ripper's pattern, there was uh, a couple of weeks in between, a couple of weeks in between, and then a month of nothing. And it was so, it, it wasn't, he didn't have a set pattern. He wouldn't go by the moon or anything like that. Um, so, but it seemed to be, uh, as I said, somebody didn't have to account for his whereabouts and had a lot of free time. So it could be you know, somebody that was sort of an itinerant, um, handyman or something like that where he didn't necessarily have a um, a set job which actually fits Mary Kelly's boyfriend too Joseph Bardet who worked as a fishmonger but but didn't have a necessarily a steady job so um, he is an interesting suspect too but to say yeah one person no the, Donald Rumbelow who wrote a great book wrote like one of the first great books on uh, Jack the Ripper who gave tours for, I don't know if he's still doing it, but he did for a long time. Um, he said, we're all going to get to heaven. And they're going to say, okay, like show us. I want to know who Jack the Ripper was. And they're going to go, okay. And they have this guy stand up. And we're all going to go, who the hell's that? 
Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's just a, a faceless person, a, a, a Jeffrey Dahmer kind of just blends into the crowd kind of person. Yep. So, so you, you tend to feel that perhaps it's not even one of the suspects who's on the list, but somebody that we, we aren't even aware of. Yes. I think that's probably as close as I would ever get yet yeah, is to, to saying who it was is, is I don't think we know. I don't think the name is, is written down anywhere. That's uh that's fascinating. It kind of it kind of lends to the the mystery of it. It's it's taken on this kind of legendary lore status where, you know, you see you you have these images that uh, conjure up into your mind when someone says the name Jack the Ripper. You see these uh you know old school police sketches in the newspaper and you know and you you kind of get this mental imagery and so in some cases maybe it's it's almost more interesting if it's not solved. True. I think a lot of the, when people say, well, why are people still interested? There's an average, if I saw, there's an average of four books a year still printed about the Ripper. That's ridiculous. Wow. That's like, what else are we saying really? But people keep finding different things. A few years ago, it was supposedly the shawl of Catherine Eddowes that they found and that they tested for DNA and they tested a, a descendant of Kosminski to, and uh, supposedly it was close, but the prob- there are so many problems with that. Like, how do you know it's his DNA? How do you know, prove it was Catherine Eddowes in the first place? All kinds of things. So. Right. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I think the, the whodunit aspect, it's probably the biggest one ever. Yeah. Um, because yeah. of, as I said, that sort of perfect storm of things that happened at the time, uh, the literacy rates shot up within just a few years. 1871, they had the Elementary Education Act, and that forced people to send their kids to school and to learn to read. And so therefore, by 12, everybody, the, the, I think it was something like, like a 30% literacy to 90 within 10 years. It was, it was an amazing accomplishment. And um, then paper, the price of paper just uh, plummeted because of industrialization. They could make paper so uh, easily and assembly line. And because only rich people pretty much before this had access to paper, we don't even think about this, as well as stamps. Stamps were very, very expensive as well. So people now could write letters to each other and they knew how to write because they had been to school and newspapers just exploded as well because they could now print a bunch of, of editions uh, because the paper was so cheap. So, and then they go, okay, but we've got all this paper and we've got all this access. What do we write about? Because they would write about garden parties and parliament. Nobody wants to read that. If you see right. some Victorian newspapers, how the print is just so small, they packed everything, every story, everything they could think of. But when they started to put like big headlines of murder and East End woman killed in Whitechapel, people bought those. And so they figured out yeah. very quickly that they started catering to that. Yeah. It's like uh, true true crime uh, podcast now. You know, it's kind of that's kind of the version of it. You know, the the twenty first century version of of that. Exactly. You know, you yeah, can, they're so popular. You can maybe get uh, at least a, a base audience because every, you have so many people are interested in it. When I yeah. when I developed the class for University of Tulsa, um, I, I did have a dean there who who did say um, yeah. You could have this probably would be popular, but you won't get any women 
to, to take this class because you know women aren't interested in, in this kind of you know, icky subject. And I was like, and I was like, are you serious? Like the biggest, <laughs> the biggest uh, audience for true crime is women. And I yeah. think a big some of the best hosts are women too. <laughs> yeah, and and one of the reasons <laughs> I think is because uh, they more likely than not are the victims. So it becomes yeah. part of uh, just something that you probably grow up with and think more uh, that you're more connected to. I think than men that we don't think of it that way. Yeah, that that kind of brings me to my last question too, and and that is that. Yes, you know, a lot of these women, uh, you know, were involved in the sex trade and, and there may have been, you know, some, some reason behind it because a lot of killers, you know, know that no one's looking for them, you know, if they disappear. Who was, I mean, were there family members still around who were kind of advocating for these women uh, who were the victims or, or, or not really? Oh, uh, most of them were from broken homes. I think at least three had uh, husbands in the past, whether or not they were divorced. The, um, but also, as far as the relationship was concerned, um, a lot of people, just like I said, Martha Tabram, who had her husband, who was just still married to, had come forward after a bunch of years. But a lot of people actually just took the name of the person they were living with with, and they would call it without benefit of clergy, which meant basically they just said they were married and they never had bothered with a wedding. Um, but yeah, and a few were identified by their family. Um, the last Mary Kelly was, was, uh, a unique, not only because, uh, of the circumstances, but, um, she didn't have really a background that we could necessarily trace. Everything we know about her is what she told other people. Can't prove any of even that her name was Mary Kelly, nothing. And we go wow. a lot by what Joseph Barnett said. And Barnett could only identify her by her hair and her ears. That was, Oof. yeah, everything else. Anyway, but, um, but yeah, so they did. Uh, and it's another interesting point, I think, too, because the idea of prostitution. There's a book that came out last year that um, talks about uh, and argues that they, these women weren't prostitutes, right? And Yes, yeah, I've heard this, yeah. yeah. And... I understand the inclination and because I, but I, I think the issue is that what they thought of prostitution then was not the way we look at it now, or even like from the seven, 1970s on or so on. First of all, the people who were, who were involved, like in this case, were about you know, twice as old as the average prostitute now. Um, but these are also women who, what else were they going to do? There weren't a lot of options as far as what they could do to make money. If they weren't a domestic servant or if they weren't lucky enough to have a job or a very, very dangerous job like the, the match girl. Like you had the, um, the uh, people who would work you know, putting matches together and would wind up that, all that phosphorus. They would wind up getting uh, their jaws would just basically rot away. They actually called it Fuzzy Jaw. These are very, very dangerous occupations that are, or hop picking, where only a few months a year they could go out into the country and pick hops to sell to to buyers. Um, there weren't a lot of things to do, especially uh, gin. I, I know this is a lot of stuff at one time, but uh, gin was so plentiful and cheap at the time as well. Um, 
one of the sort of the drawbacks of industrialization is that everybody could get it and everybody could get it cheaply. In fact, they said the government pushed and advocated for people to drink beer because it made you bloated and you would stop and and it had less alcohol in it than gin. But but people would drink gin like you would have the idea of, of uh, like somebody bringing their paycheck home and uh, giving some to the wife. They would go. Uh, then drink all of their money away. The wife would actually go drink all the money away too. And then you have nothing. And then the, uh, but these women would, this, a few of them were considered, like I said, Catherine Eddowes had just been released for drunkenness. Um, and that's how they made money. And, or that's also what they needed in order to have a place to sleep that night. They may have been drinking all day and they finally, they wind up drinking all the money they had. So they had to go out one more time trying to find somebody to get enough money to get a bed for the night or at least a, a place on the rope. So uh, some of the people, yeah, um, the, they had husbands, like I said, and none of them really had said uh, that anything necessarily uh, bad against them. There was one, I think, husband, I think it was Annie Chapman's husband who said, I forgive you now that I see you. I think they'd been estranged for a long time uh, because she had yeah. gotten into, you know, basically drinking all the time. Um, but like I said, they didn't look at that word the way that we do today. It was something that women just did. They weren't necessarily, even the idea of like the, a pimp was, was not necessarily prevalent at the time. That's why somebody like John Pizer, Leather Epry could, could, uh, rob prostitutes is because they didn't necessarily have anybody protecting them at the time. They weren't bunched together or part of a stable or anything like that. They were just somebody who decided out that night to go stand on the corner. So, wow. yeah, so it was, it's a very different time. It's all, that's one of the things to me that's still fascinating as it's very, very historical that, that, or it has to be historicized. It's very, very important. You have to sort of immerse yourself in the time period because we have this modern sensibility that just doesn't work in a lot of ways. So, yeah. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time. This is so fascinating uh, to, to kind of go through, you know, not only it's it's a history lesson on top of just being, um, you know, one of the most infamous unsolved crimes of all time. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, enlightening me for sure. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Now, do you have anything you want to promote before you go? Like uh, the class at the very least? Uh, <laughs> is there another class coming up? I, I do. Finally, I get to, it's been over a year, but I get to teach uh, in August. I'll be teaching my lit 2000 um, serial killers in, in popular culture. So uh, that should be fun. I'll finally be back in front of a class and, and get to talk about this stuff again. That's awesome. Well, if you're in the area, if you're if you're attending that university, uh, go go check it out. I know I certainly would. So, <laughs> but uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Who was Jack the Ripper? Was he some faceless local man with a hatred for women? Was he some aristocrat using his position of power to evade capture? Was it more than one killer? 
We may never know, and even if we did know, it might take away from the mystery and allure and legend that Jack the Ripper has become. But for his victims, we continue to try to dissect the clues in hopes that one day, through luck or advancement in technology, we can once and for all bring closure. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I'll be back next week with an all-new mystery. Until then, if you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend and leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media at the From the Void podcast to stay up to date. And don't forget to subscribe to ensure you never miss a new episode. I'll see you next time on From the Void.